You're listening to Energy Insiders, a weekly update on clean energy and climate policy with Renew Economies editor Giles Parkinson and leading energy analyst David Leach. Energy Insiders is brought to you by Solar A Energy, experts in solar PV, storage and monitoring, and Wattwatches, providing super smart devices to monitor and manage energy use. Hello and welcome to this latest episode of Energy Insiders. My name is Giles Parkinson. I'm the editor of Renew Economy and joining me as usual is David Leach from ITK Consulting. How are you, David? Well, thanks, Giles. And I trust all our listeners are well also. Indeed. Look, um, the big interview, and I think we'll probably go straight into it, was um, the uh, with, we had Mark Butler, the Labor Climate and Energy Spokesman. And David, there was a lot to talk about, wasn't there? Uh, Mark's announced his policy agenda, uh, as Labor has with most of its policies, well ahead of the election. Uh, broadly, they're looking for 50% renewables, 45% reduction in emissions by 2030. Uh, and there's $10 billion for, for into the Clean Energy Finance Corporation, $5 billion into a new uh, infrastructure fund and support for uh, batteries, 1 million batteries by 2025. It's, it's quite a big policy suite. Indeed it is. And look, let's have a listen to our interview, um, introducing Mark Butler, the Labor Climate and Energy Spokesman. Mark Butler, thanks for joining Energy Insiders once again. My pleasure. Labor, um, just uh, less than a fortnight ago, unveiled its detailed energy policy, um, well, I think three months to six months um, ahead of the next uh, federal election. So congratulations on that. And there's a lot to get through. And um, I suppose we'd like to go through it piece by piece. Let's start with the part that we probably know less about. And this is the Energy Modernisation Fund. Labor says it will um, put $5 billion towards that. Tell us why that is necessary, what that spending will do that the networks would not normally do, and basically what the intent is. Well, the the intent of our plan broadly is to start to get some shape around the transition in a policy sense from, from federal government to get some shape around the deep transition that's happening in our electricity sector here in Australia. As we know, it's happening in pretty much every other economy around the world. Uh, And the thing that has struck me over the last couple of years talking to stakeholders and energy companies is the lack of any real planning around that transition. It's hard to find another country that doesn't have some level of planning involved uh, uh, in um, developing policy that, that makes sure that this transition happens in a way that is in the best interests of consumers, households and businesses. Now, probably the only um, foray into planning we've seen in energy policy at a national level is the uh, market operators integrated systems plan. Mm -hmm. And I think what that makes clear to us is the need to, uh, uh, you know, have a pretty deep think about the way in which Uh, new renewable energy zones are linked up to load centres. So there is going to have to be quite a different approach, I think, to transmission planning over coming years because we're not going to be getting all of our electrons from the traditional sources of the Latrobe Valley and the Hunter Valley and Iron Triangle in South Australia and so on and so forth. They're going to be coming, um, sure, from those places still to a degree, but also from new renewable energy zones in Northwest Vic or Western New South Wales. And getting the transmission planning right for that, I think, is a pretty significant challenge identified by the market operators ISP. And one of the things I think that there is a role for government in doing is to help to de-risk and lower the costs of financing that transmission. We've got to do this very carefully. We've got to avoid the risk of 
gold plating uh, that um, if we jump into this too enthusiastically could end up biting consumers on the butt, if you like. Uh, and uh, we think that um, putting a fund that is able to provide the sort of the weight of government to assist in the financing of this transmission uh, is uh, a good idea. Now, it would. We've decided not to put it within the remit of the Clean Energy Finance Corporation. We think that that corporation has a lot of work already to do, but we, we think this is a really successful model where uh, the Commonwealth is able to bring the benefits of its borrowing capacity uh, to an industry that does need new finance brought to it, de-risk that, lower the cost of financing projects, uh, and as we know through the CEFC, actually provide a you know re relatively modest but still positive return to taxpayers, as, as the CEFC is already doing. So this would be a new fund then created under different law offices, um, drawn along similar lines. That's right. That's right. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Very much the same governance as the CEFC, but a separate entity. Okay. Mark, I, I've attended a Transgrid uh, planning forum on uh, Friday where this fund wasn't much discussed, but the AEMO was sort of complaining still to an ex or there was a lot of debate about the RIT test and looking after the rights of consumers and producers and everything. And they were also already saying that, for instance, the transmission linking in Victoria to New South Wales is falling behind schedule. And there's kind of a first mover sort of problem in these renewable zones. I, I, I guess I favour, a, a, it's not my money, a, a build it and they will come approach to transmission. I was just wondering how you see this fund and money actually um, interfacing with the fairly bureaucratic process that we've got at the moment. Well, we're trying to keep a relatively open mind as the ISP development continues to progress and I think there's a there's a very good discussion within the industry and with stakeholders um, revolving around that ISP process that we we don't particularly want to sort of muck around with we think that that's going quite well I think there there are different views around the adequacy of the RIT T um, the RIT T test uh, particularly as you start to think about more system-wide impacts of transmission planning rather than just the state-to-state -state focus that the RIT T test tends to to have um, so uh, I think you know particularly from opposition where we don't have the resources of agencies we're not particularly plugged into these formal government processes where we're trying to keep a bit of a distance to see that process um, continue to develop organically and it seems to me that the um, you know while, while people have different views about some details of the ISP and as it's as it's progressing the final form um, I think broadly the consensus is that it's been a very good process and um, the idea of some planning around this transition, which after all is a transition of an essential service, so we absolutely have to get this right, uh, the idea of some planning has been really welcome. Mm. Let's move on to the Clean Energy Finance Corporation. You've announced another um, $10 billion for that. Now, is that to sort of increase the amount of money they have disposable um, available now, or is that to sort of further their spending um, in coming years? And what will it be focused on? Uh, yeah, the, the, the second option particularly, Giles. So so as, as you'd know, and many of your listeners would know, when we set the CEFC up in the last Gillard government, it had $10 billion allocated to it in 
a number of $2 billion bytes, if you like, and it's already expended quite a bit of that from memory, I think over $6 billion, uh, leveraging um, more than $19 billion in, in private investment as well. And as I said earlier, it's already returning a relatively modest but still positive return to the budget. So this is a success. It's a real success story, I think, and we don't want to see its work finish uh, because of the allocations that were made by the Gillard government running out. So it's it's essentially an extension of their existing profile, uh, but also a refinement of their work. Uh, and I think that would be the view, I imagine, if you ask the board. I mean, the, the, the necessary work several years ago to assist new solar, new wind projects getting away, I think, is largely done. Uh, those generation forms are able to compete and beat other forms of generation on their own two feet in a properly constructed market. So the work of the CEFC, I think, will move more to um, other elements of this big transition. So, uh, you know, storage, uh, managing the intermittency of those solar and wind farms that are, that are sprouting up all across the land, but also looking at some, uh, some upstream opportunities in manufacturing as well, uh, which people are really interested in uh, around, around the country. Hmm. Let's move on to the. Mark, it's... Go ahead, but go ahead, David. So, sorry, I just uh, there's a Labor has a fifty percent renewable target, which I must say I, I fully support. Even that's not enough. I, I mean, it has to be said to get the two degrees. But do you see the CEFC as running reverse auctions with some of this money? I mean, one thing I'm quite unclear about is the interaction between federal and and state targets and. And, and the mechanism for getting to 50%, and it wasn't really all that clear in your announcement. Well, I think if you read through the speech and some of the documents we've released, um, you know, we uh, we have tried to be as clear as we possibly can from opposition about that. Our, I mean, our first preference still is to have a bipartisan market framework agreed between the major parties that is able to get to 50% that is able to be calibrated to get to 50% renewables by 2030. Uh, you know, generally, I think overwhelmingly the view is that the best solution to uh, the energy crisis is a bipartisan solution. But we also recognise that the coalition party room, at the moment at least, is uh, not in a mood to do any deal with Labor. It's not that they particularly objected to the details of the National Energy Guarantee or the Clean Energy Target before that or the Emissions Intensity Scheme before that. It's that there is a, is a substantial body of opinion within the coalition party room that simply will not countenance any deal with Labor, no matter the details. So, I mean, if that continues to be the case, then we're, we're not going to be able to, uh, to come to a bipartisan solution. We're not simply going to give up. So what we've said is that, uh, is that if we can't um, come to an agreement with the coalition, then we will move to take direct action to ensure that we get to 50% by 2030. Uh, and um, that will that will be developed in more detail in government, but almost certainly involve the Clean Energy Finance Corporation taking a leading role in conducting uh, auctions or tenders that that ensure we get the best possible price for consumers, and then deliver the investor certainty that would otherwise come from a bipartisan market framework through contracting mechanisms from government. So with the National Energy Guarantee then that you're proposing, um, even if the Liberal Party came to bite at that, which is the policy that they actually proposed, the, the, the issue will still be over the scale of the emissions reduction target, won't it? Because they're not going anywhere near a 45%. That's right. So inevitably, well, there's no way they're going to get agreement around that. 
No, absolutely not. So those reverse auctions will have to take place in the absence of a meaningful neg. Well, I guess what we've tried to lay out is from opposition in, a, in pretty substantial detail. I mean, Malcolm Turnbull didn't even take an energy policy to the last election. We have mapped out, uh, I think, as much detail as we responsibly can from opposition uh, to, to, to ensure that businesses and consumers understand very clearly what our plans are. I mean, we've had the 50% target out there now for three years or more than three years, and we now have put in as much detail as I think we responsibly can a clear pathway um, about how a shortened government would get to that. I agree with that. I think you should be commended for setting out your policy uh, as an agenda so that when people vote, they, they know what they're voting for. Uh, the Senate's always been a problem, even if you could get, uh, um, you know, generally for contentious legislation. <laughs> Uh, the CEFC and reverse auctions wouldn't actually need any separate legislation, would they? If the if the ten billion uh, and but, but but to get the ten billion would require legislation. That's right. We're still. I mean, obviously, we can only get formal advice if we win the next election. Um, but um, but obviously, people are willing to give their their uh, their informal views about that, and that does seem to be the case. I mean, I guess as a more general proposition, David, about, about our policies, I and mean, we've taken the view across the policy spectrum, whether you're talking tax or energy or uh, when we come to releasing the rest of our climate change plans and such like, that, that what we want um, people to be able to say is that there were no surprises from Labor. Um, you know, people might not like absolutely every element of every policy we put out there, but what we don't want is for people to, to think that they were surprised by what we've outlined. So that's why I think generally over the last five years you've seen from Bill Shorten's Labor uh, team um, more policy detail out than any opposition I can remember. No, no, I agree with that. I, I, I just uh, Well, I, I thought we'd move on quickly then to the, to the battery side of things. Uh, I, I guess... Uh, uh, there's a plan to get a million batteries at households, which I think would be wonderful. I, I just wonder whether, uh, you know, $2,000 on household incomes of $180,000 is actually going to be as much help considering the battery industry, and I'm a cynic here, will probably put up prices a bit to try and take some advantage of it. Uh, wouldn't it be – I mean, I guess I sort of think that uh, – uh, high-income households or higher than average uh, are the ones most likely to put a battery in because they can afford it the best uh, and probably because they consume more electricity and probably more likely to have solar on their roofs already. And uh, I guess there's an opportunity to fine-tune the plan as it goes along. Well, I, I, I mean, that hasn't been our experience uh, or the country's experience around panels. I mean, the, the rebates available to panels, uh, I think, have, have been able to coexist with a really dramatic plunge in the price of panels over time and pretty substantial competition between retailers wanting to get market share. And I, you know, I mean, we've designed the policy really to try and target it to households uh, for whom the $2,000 support will make a material difference. I mean, high-income households will probably be making these decisions in any event, irrespective of a $2,000 contribution. Um, but as, as you know, um, as well as I do, there are some other state government programs in place in South Australia and Victoria, and I think coming in Queensland as well. So I think what you'll see over the coming few years, as the price continues to come down because of technology costs, but also, I hope, more competition in the market, um, you know, we will be able to to get a real sense in the coming few years about how quickly we are progressing to the 
1 million batteries target by 2025. And so uh, one of the details of our policy is that we would have a, um, a pretty substantial review, I think, in 2022, just to see how those different programs at a state and a federal level, plus those market developments, are progressing to getting to that, that 1 million household target. Let's have a look at some of the other um, policies that uh, you haven't yet unveiled, and this is part of your overall economy-wide 45% emissions reduction target. Now, you sort of said that these will gradually be rolled out in the next couple of weeks, and you seem to have been hinting at some sort of sector-specific carbon trading schemes. I mean, it's interesting to see some of the big uh, some of the big um, companies, the miners, the BHP, Rios and Woodsides, who fought so hard against the original carbon price under the Gillard government now coming back and saying, let's please have a carbon price. So what exactly are you going to try and put together um, with those sectors to try and achieve those emissions reductions beyond the electricity sector? So just to recap for your listeners, um, they'll, they'll remember that during the Rudd and Gillard governments, our Labor's policy was to have... Uh, uh, essentially a carbon price mechanism in the form of a cap-and-trade scheme applying across the economy or at least to those very large emitters of carbon pollution. Um, the threshold, I think, was 25,000 tonnes or more, which, uh, interestingly, is also the threshold that China's national emissions trading scheme has as well. So I think that covered probably a few hundred, maybe 350 companies. The change to that over the last few years, both in the 2016 policy and the policy we're taking to this election, is we've pulled the electricity sector out to have a separate electricity policy. Uh, and I think that's broadly accepted um, across stakeholders, businesses and other groups as, as um, the proper thing to do. So it leaves the rest of those large emitters, um, manufacturing, the LNG sector, some mining and so on and so forth, to be covered by something else. So um, those industries have put to us um, uh, whether or not uh, that mechanism could be the sort of baseline and credit scheme involved in the safeguards mechanism which is currently the mechanism in place. Now, that mechanism is calibrated uh, so gently that there's not really any control on emissions from those big emitters, let alone any obligation to start reducing their carbon pollution, which is one of the reasons why, uh, since 2014, our country's carbon pollution levels have been increasing while in pretty much every other major economy in the world, they're going down. So mm -hmm. we've been very clear that whatever it is, whether it's a cap-and-trade scheme or a baseline and credit scheme, there has to be rigour in it. So the cap in a cap-and-trade scheme or the baseline in a baseline and credit scheme needs to be aligned with Australia's international emissions reduction targets. So that for us is the non-negotiable, if you like. And, um, and as to the rest of the detail, that's sort of what we're working through now with those industries and with plenty of other stakeholders as well. When can we expect to hear more about those? And um, are you fearing a, um, a a carbon tax scare campaign all over again? We seem to have got the um, the start of one already. Yeah, well, I mean, I've, the, the politics of climate change policy in Australia means that there's always going to be a base for um, these sorts of scare campaigns. And, and certainly the, the government is trying to do that again. Um, you know, I think... A really interesting case study of that is if for people who have been listening to and watching this debate for years, you remember Tony Abbott um, trying to scare everyone that Wyala would be wiped off the map. Well, I'm from South Australia. Go and have a look at Wyala now. Uh, confidence in Wyala, which is the, the second steelmaking town in the country, 
confidence there is surging on the back of a takeover of the blast furnace there by Sanjeev Gupta and his conclusion that the cheapest and the most sustainable way, most reliable way to shore up those steelworks is with renewable energy. Uh, so, I mean, that, that I think gives you a sense of the degree to which the sort of scaremongers, particularly in the coalition government and, and in areas of the media, are increasingly out of touch with where the rest of the country and big parts of the business community have found themselves now. Hmm. I, I must say what I learned out of the carbon tax uh, and carbon pricing mechanism that is that for all it's easy to be attacked politically, a carbon tax is very administratively, sim administratively simple and provides a lot of certainty to everyone, whereas schemes that rely on baselines and reducing targets are generally much more uncertain because uh, the target itself moves around and it just seemed to me after a lot years and years of debate that a tax was the simplest mechanism from every point of view except the politics. And I guess looking at the existing government scheme, the penalty for non-compliance, if there ever was one, is, is having to buy uh, more um, uh, of those um, sort of quasi-renewable certificates, which whose name I've just forgotten. I guess that would have to be modified at, a very, at an absolute minimum, wouldn't it? Yeah, and I think that's the level of detail, I think, that... Um that people are thinking about now. Um, Mark, the, um, the the climate change conference is um, starting in Poland today. In fact, I think it actually started on Sunday. Um, the challenge there is to try and set up a rule book um, for the Paris Treaty, and then it's expected over the next two years that um, countries will have to come back with um, something a bit more than what their deposited, um, you know, deposited uh, nationally determined contributions would be. It's true to say, isn't it, that Australia and the rest of the world are going to have to do a lot more to reach just a two-degree target, let alone a 1.5-degree target? That's right. I think, I think generally uh, it's accepted that the, the sum of the nationally determined contributions, as they're called, so the commitments that nation states made around the Paris Climate Agreement in 2015 would still take us to global warming levels of more than three degrees. Um, now, in, in Paris, really, the focus was on trying to get a framework agreed that would bind developed and developing countries rather than getting the targets right. And I think that was the right, that, that was the right approach. I mean, we all remember that it was only five or six years earlier that you'd seen the collapse of talks at Copenhagen. So, Five or six years is the blink of an eye in most multilateral processes. So to get things back on track uh, as quickly as the, the, the global community was able to do, particularly with under the leadership of uh, the Americans under President Obama and the Chinese, I think was a, a very substantial achievement. But you're right, the, the, the challenge now is to get a set of commitments by nation states that actually align with that central commitment in the Paris Agreement to keep global warming well below two degrees and to pursue efforts around a 1.5 degree target. Uh, the IPCC report has obviously given um, a greater sort of a pointier focus to that 1.5 degree threshold, which I imagine will be discussed a bit this week in Poland. But the real mm. challenge is to get uh, countries starting to sharpen the pencil, if you like, on their NDCs. And Australia will come under a lot of pressure on that because uh, our NDC, our nationally determined contribution of 26 to 28%, um, you know, from, from a country that has pretty much the highest per capita emissions in the OECD, it's going to have to be increased. And we've made that position clear. It's going to have to be increased um, 
even if we were on track to achieve it, and we're nowhere near that. So yeah. this is this is going to be a substantial challenge for Australia and for a whole bunch of other nation states. And that's going to be a debate you're going to have to have in 2020. Mark, uh, what, that's right. That's right. Mm-hmm. Sorry, David. Mark, another another area. I hate to get away from electricity, but uh, uh, my favourite topic. But another area is electric vehicles closely related, and you also talk about energy efficiency for the CEFC. Uh, I wondered if uh, you had any... How how are you going to think about electric vehicles? Well, this has been, uh, as you know, David, this has been an extraordinary um, area of development over the last two or three years, both in industry and in policy around the world. When I was developing the policy for the 2016 election, it was very difficult in Australia to find some good, um, well-thought-out policy about how a Commonwealth government could help the uptake of electric vehicles. In the last few years, though, uh, as we've seen, um, the industry around the world really shift, really pivot away from petrol and diesel engine cars to shifting almost all their research and development budgets into um, electric vehicles and hydrogen fuel cell vehicles. Uh, There is there's much more good, deep intellectual thinking here in Australia around what a government could do. You've seen the Electric Vehicle Council formed, which is a you know a good, vibrant organisation using good research from organisations like ClimateWorks. So it's quite a different position three years on, uh, and we're having a really good think and good discussions with stakeholders about about um, how to. Uh, how to put a climate change policy around transportation to the Australian people that will be forward-looking and really exciting. I mean, yes, there's the the question of of the transition to uh, an electric vehicle and hydrogen vehicle fleet over coming years and decades, but we still have some pretty basic challenges here. We still are, I think, the only OECD economy that doesn't have mandatory emission standards on their light passenger vehicle fleet. I mean, the Climate Change Authority delivered Parliament a report in June 2014 that simply recommended that we align with the Americans on this, you know, a very similar vehicle fleet to Australia's. And still this government has been incapable more than four years on from aligning our passenger vehicle fleet with something that is now absolutely orthodox around the world. So, yes, there's some really exciting forward-looking stuff, but there's just some basic work that hasn't been touched by this government for four years now that we need to attend to as well. The current government is looking at this dispatchable generation, this um, this um, this reverse auction, which just seems to be done on, in in all sorts of haste. Um, Angus Taylor is pushing through this. The details are not yet um, being identified. I think they're going to call for an expressions of interest over the next couple of weeks to be done over sort of January and February. What's Labor's position going to be on this? Are you going to um, are you able to to prevent this to hold this up in Parliament? Well, we're... well, and can I butt in there? Sorry, the, the, the legislation is going to be introduced on divestment this week, which I personally think is the most un-Australian thing I've heard of in about 30 years. Uh, I just wondered what, <laughs> what, the, what your ALP attitude towards that is. Uh, well, well, we haven't seen the ledge, uh, ledge yet on divestment. It's, um, as we understand it, it's going to go to the coalition party room tomorrow. That will be interesting given... The degree to which this just seems completely at odds with the traditions, the market-based traditions of the Liberal Party. Uh, but Chris Bowen and I have been pretty clear about Labor's view about this. I mean, Chris, half tongue in cheek, has um, 
has has described this as a policy thought out in sort of Venezuelan economic uh, think tanks rather than than Australian. This is an extraordinary piece of policy on the run. I've made the point that if this was in the interests of consumers, you'd think that the consumer watchdog, which undertook a 12 or 18 month thorough inquiry into the electricity sector, might have recommended it. And they deliberately didn't. As you know, I think everyone knows, the ACCC did think about these sorts of issues in the electricity industry and came to a conclusion that there was no basis for this sort of recommendation. Uh, and, you know, I, I, just, I just can't see how the government thinks that it, it understands this stuff better than a thorough inquiry by the consumer watchdog and is willing to junk decades of pretty substantial tradition uh, around business certainty and markets uh, to, to, to get really a cheap headline. Mm. Mark, we're probably just about running out of time. Are, are we? Um, do you sense there was a change in the politics of energy? I mean, I think it's fair to say that over the last five to six years, we've been hamstrung by the actions and the ideology of the far right, um, been incredibly destructive. We think about the carbon price and the attempts to scrap, scrap the rent. Do you sense that there is a mood here, a mood change here? And if that is right, then will that provide the platform for Labor to actually um, do what it says it will do in the long term and um, actually do it, make sure that Australia plays its role in meeting that two degree um, or even 1.5 degree Paris climate t- target? Well, in energy in particular, I think there is strong support for renewable energy in the Australian community. Uh, I think people see that, particularly in a country that has such extraordinary renewable resources, great solar radiation, great wind resources, and so on and so forth, some of the best scientists in the area on the face of the earth. I think the Australian community sees the transition to renewables as a no brainer. And as the costs have come down and it's become clearer that renewables are not only the cleanest form of generation, they're also the cheapest, I think that level of support in the community has become even stronger, even in the face of the sort of concerted campaign against renewables on an ideological basis, not an economic basis, just some sort of weird ideology from the government and from big sections of the media. That support seen through all the research, I think, in the community has remained very, very resilient and very, very strong. I think the other thing, um, though, is that increasingly people have come to the view that this sort of hands-off market that has developed around electricity, uh, where all the promises made by state Liberal governments that privatised our electricity systems over the course of the 1990s and 2000s, just hasn't delivered for consumers. They're just, they're just not mm-hmm. getting the benefits that they were promised. So they want this transition to renewables to happen. They want it to happen in an orderly way that looks after the interests of communities that will be impacted directly by that transition. But I think, that, I think they now want a government to take control back of the market and put in place a plan that gives them confidence that the transition will happen in their interests, not in the interests of the suppliers of energy, the big energy companies, but it's actually going to put them at the centre of the system again. Can we go better than 50% renewables? So I'm not sure who was asking that question. You both tried. That's that's Giles, and I'm sure we can. But uh, personally, I think blaming high prices as evidence that the market doesn't work is 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 not always right. And uh, I would just note that the federal government historically has never had much of a role in electricity, really. Uh, It's been a state matter, uh, and it was the states that sold off their assets to the private sector. Um, And and I do think there is still 
room for a lot of debate about the having the the, the rule maker owning teams in the competition, if I can put it that yeah, way. Yeah, and I think they're all substantial and reasonable points for debate. I mean, I, I just think though that this isn't as we, re, we remind ourselves this is an essential service. It's not the only sector of the economy undergoing a really substantial technological disruption. There are plenty. But this, this is an essential service uh, and we can't have the transition managed badly. Uh, as I've said in a couple of forums, at the end of the day, if people miss out on their Saturday night movie b- between the DVD store closing and managing to organise you know, streaming services through Netflix or such like, no one really gets hurt. But but you know, it'll all work out in the end of the day. But 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 managing this essential service on which people's health, um, on, on which business viability depends, has to be done better than it has been done over the last several years. And you know, in, in substantial part, that's because of failures in the building I'm in right now, it's the Australian Parliament House, because of the impact of the climate wars on investor certainty and such like. Mark, we've um, run, probably run out of time and uh, we do thank you and we know you've got other appointments. So, look, uh, thanks very much for joining us um, on the Energy Insiders podcast. Absolutely, my pleasure. Thanks very much. And that was Mark Butler, the Labor Climate and Energy Spokesman. David, um, much to argue with, with there? Uh, no, I didn't think there was much to argue with. Uh, uh, we'll have to see how the battery program goes. Uh, as I said earlier, I, su- I support Labor putting its policy agenda out there, much as the Victorian government did. Uh, much as the South Australian Liberal government did, um, when, when people know what they're voting for, it's easier to make their mind up. Uh, I, I'd go one step further uh, and say that uh, we learnt in this interview today what will happen if if um, uh, the can't get agreement in federal parliament uh, about a policy and Labor is elected, then it will be the CEFC and reverse auctions, uh, which probably requires a lot less legislation. Indeed. And I think the controversy over the Labor target will not come as how the the coalition is trying to position it being um, too strong and reckless and, and what have you, but probably being too weak. I think, if anything, Labor's going to be attacked from the left wing, saying they should probably go even further than 50%. But um, perhaps the politics of the uh, nation's not ready for that yet. Well, I think it'll more also be about reliability and price. That's uh, the battleground that the coalition would, would like... Uh, the battle to be fought on. And, uh, you know, one of the things I ask myself, and I don't, we, we shouldn't discuss it anymore now because time is short, but, you know, if I had to choose between having state governments or federal government policies, I mean, the Victorian government's 50% renewable policy is, is very strong. And if we had the same in New South Wales, uh, I, I'd be very happy. And then you get a f- fixed four-year term to get it implemented. Absolutely, yes. Look, um, a couple of other things we should probably just tidy off um, about. Um, one is just the um, the first anniversary of the Tesla big battery. Um, look, it has been a bit of a um, game changer for Australia, just at least the way of people sort of thinking about or realising what's possible, the change in the technology, marking the way forward, um, and as encouragement for more batteries and or obviously um, other storage of a longer nature. Um, we had a bit of a... a um, a uh, bit of a calculation done by the Climate and Energy College, but I'm looking forward this week to more detailed conversation with the um, Hornsdale and the Neo, Neo-N people 
Um, they're coming out, I think, on Wednesday or Thursday with some detailed analysis of whether Tesla battery comes in. So that should be interesting. Um, and I think the other two batteries are just about online too in time for summer and um, not a moment too soon because we've seen in the last couple of days in Queensland um, very, very high temperatures and even AEMA getting a little bit nervous about the uh, capability of some of the existing fossil fuel generators to produce at the nominated output. Look, I never had any doubt that the battery could do frequency control at, at, at the appropriate level. I've, I've never had any doubt about that at all. Uh, the second thing I'd say is that batteries are getting increasingly competitive with open cycle gas in two-hour windows, and I think it was very telling what's going on in California uh, in regard to that. Uh, um, uh, and as far as the unreliability of the coal-fired power stations, Queensland, I think, uh, uh, basically... Uh, has less to worry about in the medium term than New South Wales or Victoria. A major outage at either, say, your lawn uh, that continued through summer or one of the New South Wales power stations, Araring or uh, Mount Piper or Vales Point, uh, would, has the potential to, still has the potential to cause a lot of major drama. Mm. And look, there's a few other things to look forward to this week. Um, I think we must be um, due up for our next um, COAG Energy Minister's meeting. I guess that's when we get the latest version of the National Energy Guarantee. And intriguingly... Um, well, well, actually, Giles, there's a lot more in, in that agenda. Uh, I think we're expecting to get advice about the RIT test and the way to implement the... Um, uh, the ISP that Mark Butler mentioned, and I think this is incredibly important myself to the underlying fundamentals of how we move forward, is who's going to be making uh, responsibility for decisions. You know, it's difficult for a transmission company to go ahead and build transmission, uh, even if there's a good economic case for it. And it's often quite difficult to prove the economics under RIT, even though there's the underlying feeling that, that the transmission is broadly needed. Uh, so, so getting some progress on that uh, at COAG level uh, would be incredibly important. In the end, progress about the NEG, there's some more modelling on this, doesn't really achieve very much until we can get some political uh, agreement. Absolutely. Um, and that interesting stuff about the RIT too, because caught in the middle there is Snowy Hydro, which wants to make a decision about Snowy 2.0, um, and it won't really know the answer to the extra transmission construction that it requires to be able to deliver that um, project to all the consumers. So um, that's going to be an interesting one there. Um, and well, I, I guess we're also... I Aemo spoke at this Transgrid Forum, and again, we'll talk about this a little bit more, Giles, but uh, on Friday, but I thought it was a very interesting uh, forum, and uh, Aemo was calling for more transparency uh, rules around uh, people like new solar or wind farms that want to connect. They should be, once they go into the connection queue, all their details should be available. So all the other people who are looking to connect uh, uh, can, can see what's in the queue and what's behind the queue, and we can avoid some bureaucracy. I've always been in favour of more transparency in every part of the process, and I, I think AEMO's suggestion there should be should be acted on uh, by the ESB. Uh, and also, the fact is that the transmission links that we so urgently need are already falling behind schedule in the New South Wales Victoria connection. I mean, you know, something has to be done. Well, that's right, yes. And look, I'll just probably just sort of sign off um, with a couple of other little milestones. Um, one is the uh, Caradoc um, solar farm, the biggest so far in Victoria has um, completed and is now operating in full. The interesting one about that one is actually supplying its power for Carlton United Breweries, which by the end of this year will be 100% solar. 
Um, the um, the Kidston, uh, first stage Kidston solar farm is now fully complete up in Queensland. And um, one other thing of interest, um, David, Carnegie Wave Energy had its annual general meeting and uh, basically came to the conclusion, well, that was a pretty dumb idea. Um, energy made clean, this push into solar batteries. Interestingly, they sort of talked about the quality of their projects, but like RCR Tomlinson, they got caught out by bidding too low and basically having massive cost overruns, and they decided their best bet is to go back to wave energy. Yes, uh, I won't say much about Carnegie. <laughs> No, best left that. Look, I think that's enough for today, um, David. Thank you very much. And um, it was great having Mark Butler on the program. And we thank him. And um, thanks all to our listeners and, of course, to our sponsors, What Watches and Solaray Energy. And uh, we'll be back next week. And you know, Well, Giles, we should mention there's a smart energy conference here in New South Wales uh, tomorrow that uh, – uh, Malcolm Turnbull, who swore he wasn't going to have an opinion about anything once he left politics, <laughs> uh, uh, will be speaking out and giving his views on electricity amongst uh, lots of other people. So I'm looking forward to being a fly on the wall there. Well, yes, yes. And I think we can all already put a title to his um, speech is what people wish he had said while he was prime minister. <laughs> Indeed. <laughs> OK, thanks for that. Bye for now. Energy Insiders was brought to you by Solaray Energy, leading innovators of smart energy management technology. Experts in solar PV, storage and monitoring, they're the smart choice for consumers and business. Visit solarray.com.au and secure your energy future today. Energy Insiders was also brought to you by Wattwatches, makers of ultra-smart devices to manage electricity use and costs. Accurately monitor and control electrical circuits over the internet in real time. Visit whatwatches.com.au and take control of your energy use.